morning, church family. I'm back. <laughs> uh, for, for those of you who might not know me, my name is Brendan, and, uh, and for, for five years I was on the pastoral team here. Uh, I uh, felt God calling me to step down from the pastoral team um, back in January and just kind of become a like a regular person serving in the church, and that's been, um, that's been wonderful. God has been blessing that. But it is, um, it's good to be, to be back up here. It's a joy to, uh, to, to bring God's word to, to God's people. Uh, I was actually supposed to preach back in March, um, but I don't know, I wasn't quite ready, so I threw myself off a ladder instead. <laughs> um, but actually, just a, a quick update, because everyone's always asking, you've been praying, thank you so much. Um, I, I had a follow-up with the surgeon this Friday, um, and, uh, and the surgeon was just absolutely flabbergasted at my recovery. So, like, I, I, do have, I have a cool scar here, and, um, but he, he, the, the doctor said in his, his entire career that this was, on one hand, one of the most severe injuries of this type he had ever seen, but it was also the most remarkable recovery he had ever seen. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So he, he like, like really, like he used words like incredible, unbelievable. Um, he also had some choice expletives that I can't share from the from the pulpit. Um, <laughs> and so, so he said, I don't need physical therapy anymore. He said, I'm released from all restrictions, um, which means now I have to take out the trash. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Um, and so, so thank you for your prayers. I was like, you know, he's, he's like, I, I don't even know how this happened. I'm like, I know. I have lots of people praying for me. So, so thank you. Um, and so, and maybe you can keep praying because um, I'm at maybe like 80%. He expects me to get back to 100, but I still have some nerve pain and nerve damage in here. So please keep, continue praying for me. Um, but that was a really good report. So for several months now, uh, we as a church, we've been in, um, in the, the book of 1 Peter, Peter's, Peter's letter to, to Christians um, scattered throughout the Roman Empire of his day. And, and we've been seeing the, these repeated themes uh, in, in 1 Peter, that the Christian life is, is a life of, of exile, that, that this is not our home. Uh, we're not home yet, that's the, the, the title of the series. Uh, that living as a follower of Jesus in whatever place, whatever time, whatever country God has placed you in, is that you are a stranger in a strange land. Uh, you're not home yet. Um, and as strangers in a strange land, we look strange. And Peter has been unpacking as, as exiles uh, in this world that we, we follow the, the strange upside-down values of Jesus' kingdom, that we embody the values of, of the, the, our coming home, the new Jerusalem, where everything will be made right, and we're living that way now in the present and so Peter has been commending these strange upside-down virtues like, like meekness, like submission, gentleness, joy in the face of suffering, how to deal with, with opposition. And so many of these feel so countercultural um, because, of, of, course, of course, they are. We're, we're not home here. See, these countercultural attitudes, like in, just in the last few weeks, we've seen wives submit to your husbands and everyone submit to the governing authorities. And that right there is just enough to make everybody on both sides of the spectrum mad. <laughs> and yet, here we are as followers of Jesus, 
embodying these strange values and living out our faith in a world that is not our home. So today we come to the, uh, to the end of chapter 3. And uh, today's big idea, if you kind of want to hang your hat on something, it's, it's this. It's, it's, we're going to see that because of our hope in Christ, we can face opposition with gentle confidence. That, that's the, the big idea, is that because of our hope in Christ, we can face opposition with gentle confidence. And so we're going to see Peter sort of unpack this idea for us, and we're going to see that really there's, there's three categories of hope that, that shape how we live out, live out our faith in a hostile world, that we're going to see our, our hope in Christ's promises, our hope in Christ's death, and our hope in Christ's resurrection, and see how that hope that we have changes how we, how we relate to people, how we relate to circumstances and situations. So, so before we open up God's word and look at it, I, I just want to pray. I want to pray, ask for God's blessing on his word and our time together. So let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your, your perfect word uh, and that you have given us here everything that we need uh, to, to follow you, to, to know you, to be transformed, to know our, this great hope. And so, Lord, I pray that as, as I speak, Lord, that you'd make my words clear and that as we listen to your word, Lord, that you would open our minds and hearts to hear what you, the sovereign living God, have to say to us this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start with our hope in Christ's promises. And so you know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that, that uh, again, one of the prominent themes that Peter keeps returning to is, is that in the Christian life, there's opposition, there's suffering, bad things happen, life is hard because this world is not our home. And now he says this in verse 13. He says, now... Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? To which I might reply, well, I mean, lots of people, Peter. <laughs> like, like lots of people. This is a messed up world. There's lots of evil and injustice. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Uh, but of course he knows that. Uh, Peter knows that there's injustice and evil in this world. He knows that things don't go well for you just because you're nice. What he's saying is like this is sort of just the general principle he's reminding. He's like, hey, you know what? Like, the, hey, don't be a jerk, because <laughs> you know, things generally work out for people who aren't jerks. It's generally how it works. It's a general life principle. But in a broken, fallen world, it doesn't always work like that, and all the more so for strangers and exiles here. And so, so he continues. So he says, now you know, he's like, generally speaking. Who, who's going to give you a hard time if you're zealous, eager to do what's good? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And what, what Peter is doing there is he's, he's just plagiarizing straight from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He, he, was, he was a good student. He was there for, G, for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He was a good student. He was taking notes. Actually, Peter was not a good student. He was probably not taking notes. But he remembers that this, this was a theme of Jesus' teaching. Um, and so Matthew, Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you, insult you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That's what we would call a promise. Jesus making a promise to to a certain category of people, those who are persecuted, mistreated because of him. And this this is Jesus, the one that we were singing about, the king of kings, clothed in majesty, and the king makes a promise. And he says, when this happens to you, there is blessing. He says, there's reward for his people who endure mistreatment for his sake. It's, God promises, he says, I, I see the injustice. I see the insults. I see what happens to you. He, so God knows, he sees, and he promises that he will compensate in the end. Everything that it costs to follow Jesus is compensated in the end. He says, your reward is great in heaven. Now, you know, of course, it's, it's easy to say that, right? Especially, especially sitting here on cushioned seats uh, in an air-conditioned auditorium. That sure is a harder thing to hold on to, though, right? When, when the mistreatment's actually happening. When maybe you're, you're passed over for the promotion at work that, that you earned um, because you talk about your faith at work. Or when the other students in your class um, give you a hard time because you're a Christian. And you know, those are you know, mild examples that, that we might experience. And they're mild examples in a world where many of your brothers and sisters today are in prison or gathering in secret because they worship Jesus. We live in a world where four weeks ago, militants surrounded and attacked a church in Nigeria, killing 30 people. Easy to to say, blessed are the persecuted. Harder to, to hold on to it when the militants are around your church. But you see, Jesus here, in promising this, Jesus is not just sort of whitewashing these tribulations. Uh, and, and Peter, quoting Jesus here, he's not making light of the sufferings that believers can expect to experience in this life. I mean, P- Peter knows. Peter himself knows. By the time of this letter, um, Peter has he's been arrested. He, he has spent time in hiding. He has seen the church ravaged by persecution. And Peter himself will lose his life. He'll be executed by the authorities outside of the city of Rome. He, he knows the cost, and yet he writes, have no fear of them. Back to verse 14. It says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, here's, here's Peter's secret to confidence in the face of opposition and suffering. You see, contrasted with fear 
of experiencing bad things with fear, which is sort of like the normal reaction. That's, that's the reflex. But contrasted with that, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And you know, that, that word holy, that, that's a church word we throw around a lot. And, and sometimes, sometimes you might think of it as holy means sort of like morally pure. Uh, that's often how we'd use it. Like if you're, giving, if you're criticizing someone for being holier than thou, it's because they think they're better than everybody. But that's not really what the word holy means. It doesn't, so he's not saying in your hearts regard Jesus as, really, as, as a really good person. The word holy means set apart, means unique, one of a kind. And in being unique and one of a kind, something holy is precious and valuable. A, a one of a kind baseball card is worth millions of dollars. So whenever we say God is holy, what we're saying is utterly unique, in a class by himself, peerless in value and worth. And so, Peter says, don't, when opposition and hard times come, instead of fear, he says, instead, take up in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as valuable and precious to you. And you can hear that, that's like, that's emotion language. That's not just your head, but in your heart, the seat of your emotions and desires. He says, he says, here's the secret, is to see and experience Christ as valuable, precious, glorious, better than whatever you're losing. Look on him in his word until the weight of who he is, the weight of what he promises outweighs your circumstances. That's what Peter says, do, do that, do that. In your hearts, feel the great worth of Jesus. Paul said it this way. Paul said, he said, I've counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The author of Hebrews talked about his audience, his, his audience on the run from persecution saying your, your property was plundered, but you rejoiced because you knew you had something better, a better and lasting possession. And Peter says it, honor Jesus as valuable and precious. See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, explains, describes his own suffering this way. He says, this light momentary affliction. And I put a little asterisk there because you have to know Paul is also not downplaying his circumstances. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 4. In chapter 1, at the beginning of his letter, he said, he said, I want you to know about the affliction we experienced. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Anyone ever been there? Like, can, anyone, can you relate to that? Like so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired that we were going to make it out alive. But here in chapter 4, he says, and that burden and despair and affliction, he calls it light and momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, passing away. 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hoping in in these promises, hoping in Christ's promises to his people, it it helps us to see our our, our circumstances on a a different time scale and a a different perspective. Because the reality is, is what is utterly burdening in this moment is in fact a light and momentary thing in light of the endless glory that is coming. What's beyond my strength in this moment is no match for his power. The the things that are seen, that are right in front of me, that are happening to me, feel all-consuming now, but they are a blip on the radar of eternity. what, What feels like a mountain too high to scale is but a pebble next to the Himalayas of glory that await us. This is, this is our hope, that these promises, that the one who promised them is true, and he keeps his word. So what does that hope look like? What does what, what the confidence that is born out of that hope look like? Does it look like swagger? Like I, I got a chip on my shoulder. I got, a, I, I got it all together. I, you know, God is on my side. Watch out, world. Um, Does it look like scorning those who are different than me or triumphalism or mockery? No. As Peter continues, we're going to see it looks like this hope looks like a gentle confidence that points people to Jesus, that even points my enemies to Jesus, points those who oppose me to Jesus. Verse 15, Paul continue, uh, Peter continues, he says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Verse 15 here, I love verse 15. It's so practical, so, so helpful. See, because Peter says, flowing out of this heart that treasures Christ, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and respect. There, there, there's so much here to unpack. Uh, in fact, in, in the apologetics class I teach, any, any of my, my, my co-op apologetics people here? Yeah, whoop, shout out. <laughs> well, we, we spent an entire class period just unpacking this, this verse. So Paul says, always be prepared to make a defense. The, the Greek word there for defense is apologia. It's where we get our English word apology, although Paul, uh, Peter's not saying, you know, apologize for your faith, say sorry for your faith, because it's also it, it, where we get the word apologetics, uh, and that means, and this Greek word here simply means defense. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. But when he says always be prepared to make a defense, that doesn't mean that we move through life in a sort of defensive position, like I'm, I'm ready, come at, come at me. <laughs> like that, that's, that's not the picture he has in mind. What it, what it means is 
that you are equipped and you are engaged in sharing your faith. It means you're ready to answer questions. It means you've thought through questions and you've thought through answers. It means you're, you're eager to talk about Jesus, which, which makes sense in the flow of thought here. It's a, you know, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as precious, valuable, and always be ready to talk about and defend that great value, who Jesus is. Because, you know, like that, that's, how our, that's how our hearts work, right? We, we talk about what we love. Uh, we're, all, we're all evangelists for the things that, that we love. You know, my eight-year-old Caleb, he will talk your ear off about Pokemon cards. <laughs> he, he is an evangelist for Pokemon cards. And I love my electric car. I am primed and ready at, at any moment, ready to go with 10 reasons why you should buy a Tesla. <laughs> I'm always prepared to make a defense. That's just how it works. The things you love in your, in your life, your, your hobbies, your interests, your family, whatever, like you, you're ready to talk about them. And so how much more should the greatest value, the glory and grace of Jesus Christ prime our hearts to talk about him? So I was thinking here that you know, perhaps one little application, a, a takeaway takeaway here from always be prepared. Christian, know your testimony. Think about how you would share the story of God's grace in your life. And think about it in, in a way, in, like, think about how to share this in a way that communicates the gospel, that communicates Jesus as a savior, that you needed a savior and he rescued and forgave you from all of your sins. Like, just th- think about how to articulate that. And then, you know, if we're going to be prepared, then think about how to articulate that without using Christianese church lingo. Because... People out there, they, they don't know words like righteousness and sin. And, you know, so, so think, okay, how would I share my faith with somebody who has never set foot in church before? How would I share about what God has done in my life? Be prepared. And now, when we keep reading, uh, th- this verse, Peter gives us a really interesting strategy here in sh- for sharing your faith. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Now, there are, there are lots of good methods of evangelism. They're, they're, all, they're all valid in their context. You know, some are called to be street preachers. Uh, some, are, you know, some are called like what crew does on, on college campuses. Go talk, to, go talk to Eric about this, that, you know, going up to people and engaging them in conversation with questions. Like, that, that, that's great. Do that. But what Peter envisions here is he actually envisions people asking you. Do, do you see that? He's, again, it's a good thing to go up to say, hi, my name's Brendan, can I tell you about Jesus? Like, sure. <laughs> but what he is envisioning is people asking you. So, so how does that happen? And well, look at the content of what Peter envisions the questions being. He says, he says make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. They see your hope and it prompts questions. 
So, and this is where we come back again to Peter's theme of suffering and opposition because, you know, hope, hope is something that's only seen in adversity. In, when bad things happen, then there's, then there's an opportunity to talk about hope. Nobody sees you sitting on a beach drinking a margarita and asks, why are you so hopeful? <laughs> like that, that is not a question that has ever crossed anyone's mind. But when you get bad news and they say, I would have fallen apart and yet you have confidence, how? Or when you're mistreated by someone and you respond with grace and gentleness and somebody watching says, that is not how I would have responded. Why did you say that? Those are the moments when, when the bottom drops out, when the diagnosis comes, when, when life goes wrong. Those are the moments that what you hope in is revealed. Those are the moments. Sometimes, sometimes it can be, you know, bracing to, to really see that, to, to, to look at my life, to look at myself in the mirror and say, is, you know, is, is my confidence in my stock portfolio and bank account? Um, if it is, my condolences. <laughs> is your confidence in your health? In, in, your, in your abilities, I got, I, I've got this, is your confidence in people's good opinion of you? Or is your hope in Christ's promises? What, what he says, who he is, what he has done for you, what he has promised to you. So let me ask, let me ask you a, qu a question. Peter says, be prepared for when anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. When's the last time anyone asked you? When is, when's the last time that somebody saw something so different in you that they were compelled to ask you about it? And you know, maybe, maybe, it's been a while because life is good and things are going well, just normal life, and that, that, that's fine. Or, or maybe this might be a question to just go and chew on, you and the Holy Spirit. Um, could it be that we don't get asked that a whole lot because it looks like we hope in the same thing that everyone else does? It looks like our hope is in our family and our friends and our success and our money and whatever. And it looks that way because when bad things happen, we respond the way everyone else would respond. The money's gone and we freak out. The bad thing happens and we're, we're shattered. If, if you respond the same way anybody else would, why would they ever think to ask what, what you're hoping in? So when's the last time somebody asked you? As we keep going, I, I, I love this. Peter, Peter adds, tacks on at the end, this little qualifier. Um, I, I love it because he knows his audience. He knows us. He knows our tendencies. He says, you know, be prepared to... to 
when people ask you about your hope, yet, I, I almost imagine him sort of like exasperated, yet, guys, gentleness and respect, please. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's sort of how I, rem- uh, how I imagine Peter, Peter saying it, which, which is great because when you read the Gospels, Peter is probably the least gentle and respectful person you will meet, <laughs> but he has been changed by Jesus. And he has learned his lesson over many hard years of Jesus probably sending him to school on this topic like, men, like he does to many of us. He says, yet do this with gentleness and respect. And, and I feel like just like Peter, like we, we need that reminder, don't we? He's, he's like, don't dunk on your opponents. Don't, don't lay into people who disagree with you. Don't be dismissive or condescending. Because really what that's doing is, is, is you're fighting your opponents with the world's weapons. You're fighting with their weapons. And that's not how followers of Jesus, exiles and strangers are to live. We, we fight with kindness, with gentleness, with meekness, with humility because, because we follow the one who said, Father, forgive them as they were nailing him to the cross. We follow the one who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart and I have rest for you. We follow the one who promised, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. They're the ones who win in the end. Do we believe him? Or do we pick up our opponent's weapons when we're challenged? And Peter, just as he goes on, he just lays out the the practical basis for this. Peter's a practical, down-to-earth kind of guy. He says, do this with gentleness and respect so that when you're slandered, when the, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They just proven wrong. So, 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 Peter, so Peter's kind of giving us two, two encouragements here. He's, it says, live in a way that raises questions in your opponents and live in a way that proves them wrong about you. Live in a way that proves them wrong because they might have all sorts of ideas about what Christians are like, that, that you're bigoted, that you're backwards, that you're narrow-minded, judgmental, holier than thou. So prove them wrong. And even though practically speaking, they might not admit that they're wrong because, you know, you don't like to admit when you're wrong. You double down. They're going to double down. It says do it anyway. Do it anyway. Live in such a way that proves the criticisms wrong. 4, verse 17, he says, If all else fails, you got this. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you suffer because you're a jerk about your faith, Peter's like, well, what good is that? <laughs> but if you respond with kindness and gentleness and humility, and you still get mistreated... Peter's like, well, good, good. So we have hope in Christ's promises to, to hold on to what he has said to us in the face of opposition. As we, as we continue, we're going to see now, now Peter in some ways gets more specific, gives us another thing to hold on to, and this is our hope in Christ's death. And watch the flow of his argument here as he, he sort, of, sort of concludes that thought of saying, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Parentheses here. It's 
better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, which means, which implies, sometimes it is. Sometimes God does ordain suffering for his people. God is sovereign. God's in control. In fact, God doesn't want to be left, let off the hook for that. God says, I want you to look to me because what you're going through is, is, is my will for you. That's a hard word. That's a whole sermon, but, but there it is. But now follow, follow his argument. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil for because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good because in doing so, you join Jesus' suffering. You follow in his steps. You, you are walking the path of the author and founder of your faith who blazed this trail before you. And his trail went to Golgotha, to a cross and a grave. And so will yours if you follow him. And Peter says that's a good thing. It's good to suffer for doing good because Christ also suffered. And Christ's suffering was for you. And, and it says Christ's suffering is once for sins. Now, in one sense, Jesus' whole life, he was the man of sorrows, despised and rejected. But, but Peter's saying he suffered once for sins because though you are following in his footsteps, you are following the one who has done it all. You're not adding to his work. You're not, you're not picking up the pieces to put together something that he left for you. And Jesus did it all. He has paid for all of your sins. He has conquered sin and death and hell. He has stood in your place to take the punishment that you deserve so that you, sinner and rebel though you be, can go free, to be adopted into God's family once for all. Jesus paid the price. And you and your suffering can be a little arrow pointing to that, pointing to that grace. You responding with grace to your opponents points to the one who offers grace to them. You suffering for doing good is a little picture. And God might grant your opponents eyes to see how the little picture of your life looks like the one that you follow, who gave his life for you and for them. And verse 18 here, this is, I love verse 18. This, this is my favorite sort of succinct summary of the gospel in all the Bible. You know, sometimes like it's good, especially if you want to be prepared, it's good to have some kind of, you know, verses to hold on to, to be like, here's what I believe. And so some people, you know, it's John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Uh, that's a good summary of the gospel. First Peter 3, 18 is my favorite summary of the gospel. It's that Christ suffered, not for his sins, but for mine. He stood in my place, took my sins he was righteous. He was perfect. I'm a sinner, but he traded places with me so that I can be forgiven so that 
love this phrase, so that he might bring us to God. There, there is the goal of the gospel. There's the, the highest good of the good news. There is the purpose of the cross. You know, if, if you think, you know, as a Christian, you think about all the things that Jesus has done for you, what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus' death for you, and you might think of things like, like he's forgiven my sins. And that's true. That's not the best news. Because forgiveness of sins is just because there's something in the way. And Jesus has done, it, done everything to take it out of the way so that he can bring you to the one you were made for. You might say, Jesus died for me so I can go to heaven. That's true. But what is heaven? Except the presence of God face to face with the one who made you and knows you and wipes away your tears. Eternal life is to know him, to be with him. So this is the best news of the gospel, that he suffered and died to bring us to God. And I, I, I love how, how John Piper says it. He, he says it this way. He says, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. Oh, church, this is our hope. That we have a savior who died for us so that we might find everlasting joy in him. The everlasting joy that outweighs all of the sorrows and hardships of this life. An endless weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are being brought to the one who made us and made us for himself. This is hope. Hope in Christ's death. And now Peter continues, and now we see hope in Christ's resurrection. You see that as he transitions here at the end of verse 18, that, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And now Peter makes what seems like a strange left turn here but I don't think it is. So let me read this, and you're all going to scratch your heads and say, what? And then let's, let's look at it quickly. So Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a result, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What? <laughs> like, where, where, did, where did that come? I was following Peter until he started talking about spirits in prison and Noah, and I always get the hard texts. <laughs> no, so there's, there's two views of what Peter's doing here. Bo both, of these, both of these make sense. One view is that Peter is simply backing up his case by talking about how Christ was speaking through the, the prophets in the Old Testament. That it was Jesus speaking by his spirit through Moses, through Isaiah, through Noah. And Noah in the midst of opposition and persecution uh, uh, elsewhere is called a herald of righteousness. And so there, there's Noah and it was Jesus speaking through him. 
Peter says something to that extent explicitly in his second letter. So some people say maybe that's what he's talking about here. And that might be what he's talking about. Although to, to me, that doesn't seem to really fit the context and flow of thought here. Um, what, what seems to me to better fit the flow of his thought is the second view, which might sound stranger to you, but I think is actually pretty well su- supported in Scripture. It's that when Peter says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that he's talking about the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That he, he's talking about what, what the words of the Apostles' Creed that have been recited for, by Christians for, for two millennia, the words of the Apostles' Creed that, that he was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. And this, this view says that what Peter's talking about here is that Jesus in his death descended to the grave and proclaimed his victory there. His victory over sin and death and Satan proclaimed the enemy thrown down, the strong man's house plundered, Satan bound and shamed, death humiliated on its own turf. And if you've ever read in high school, you might have read parts of Dante's Divine Comedy. Dante's Inferno, where he gets a tour, a tour of hell. My favorite scene in, in, in that book, now this is of course is just fiction and stuff, but my favorite scene in, in, in that book is, is towards the beginning when Dante first are, enters, he sees the massive gates of hell shattered from the inside out, broken down. It's this picture of Jesus triumphantly marching out of hell and out of the grave. It's the, the, the great Easter hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today. One of the verses that we don't sing nearly enough is this. It says, vain the stone, the watch, the seal. Christ has burst the gates of hell. Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise. So in this, in this view is saying that, that's what Peter has in mind here, which flows, which really flows with this train of thought of, of that Jesus suffered and he died. And in his death, he was absolutely victorious, trampling over the enemy. And Peter connects this to, to Noah's day, possibly because these fallen angels, spirits might be referenced in Genesis 6. And also possibly because he sees Noah as this persecuted minority as sort of a parallel to the experience of Jesus and the experience of all believers. That Jesus bore our sins and passed through death and hell and judgment and was rescued triumphantly from the grave. Noah passed through the waters of judgment and was saved. And then Peter extends the parallel to us. He says, in the same way that Jesus passed through death into resurrection and Noah passed through the flood and was rescued, so we have passed through the waters of baptism into new life. Passed through these waters into new life. And when he says, when he says here that this corresponds to baptism which saves you, Peter's really clear here that that, that doesn't mean that like, the act of baptism itself, dunking or sprinkling or whatever, is somehow this magical formula that gets you into heaven. It's like, because he says, it's not about the water. 
It's baptism. It's not just the washing. It's, the, it's, it's not the water that saves you. So if we could just sort of, you know, dunk, dunk everybody, okay, we're good. Or, you know, sprinkle, sprinkle everybody and, and, and we're good. It's grace through faith saves you, which is what Peter says here. He says it's not the washing. It's the appeal to God for a good conscience, for forgiveness, for mercy, for cleansing of guilt. He says the one who asks for that, he's like, that's what saves you. And he says that's what baptism is. And the picture here is just as Jesus suffered and we follow him on that Calvary road, we take up our cross and we suffer too. Well, Jesus went to the cross, but on the other side of the cross, there was an empty tomb and so too for us. As we follow Jesus on that Calvary road, as, as we model his suffering in our life and in our in our relationship to opposition and to suffering, so too we model that death in the very proclamation of our faith. It says, I have died with Christ. I have risen with Christ. I'm alive. It's what, it's what Romans 6, 4 says. Paul says, says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what Peter is saying here is he's saying Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has passed through suffering into victory. And so, Christian, will you. And so follow him. If I can have the, the worship team come up. The last verse closes here on this note of triumph. That this this. Jesus, whom we serve and worship and follow, says he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. See, we can have confidence and hope in opposition because Jesus gets the last word. We've read the end of the story. Spoiler alert. Jesus wins. The tomb is empty. Jesus is on the throne. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. We have hope. The gates of hell have been shattered from the inside out. Death itself has lost its sting. Death has been defanged by Jesus. And so, in light of that, in light of this hope, what opposition do we have to fear? Who can be against us if God is for us? The gates of hell are broken. They will not prevail against Jesus' church. The nations rage, Psalm 2 says, but the king on his throne laughs. Satan accuses, but who is there to condemn when Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised, who is alive today, who is before the throne interceding for his people. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will opposition and all of the hardship and suffering of this life somehow pry us out of the, the nail-scarred hands of the one who loves us and lives for us? No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.
This is our hope, church. This is our confidence and this is our message. We've been set free, come join us. (laughs) Because this hope that we have can be for them too. So let's, let's stand. And let's, let's respond to God, respond to his grace, and respond to this great hope by singing this song, Living, Living Hope. Jesus is our living hope, no matter what comes.